0: Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Marun, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. Hey, man, we're uh, glad to see you guys. I just saw the Charlie Day meme there in the video, and I can't believe this is my last sermon in the sermon series. Justin's going to wrap it up next week for us. But um, I went this whole time without using that Charlie Day meme, which is like king of the memes, and I just missed an opportunity on that one. So I apologize because I know you were coming here looking forward to that. Um, We've been in this sermon series where um, we've been thinking about how Scripture works. At the end of the day, this whole sermon series has been a run about how we interpret and process scripture, how we're in dialogue with scripture, what we do, and trying to find a healthier way to read, uh, to read that scripture. Um, and the way that this, the idea here has been maybe different than when I was brought up. Um, when I started going to church, you you read the Bible, you had a quiet time, you prayed, and if you were really super special, you probably were memorizing scripture, like in one verse increments. Right? That's still sort of general wisdom given to. You. Uh, if you know our friend Keith, um, who hosts our online conversation and helps with Barrel Age Theology, um, he just memorizes whole books of Scripture um, just for the discipline of doing it, which I can barely remember, like my kid's birthdays. Um, and he's keeping track of this, but that was the way, right? You took you took verses of Scripture in small chunks, and even down to like individual words. And that's, that's how you let God's spirit change you and shape you and work around you. And then let, hear me say, that's good. We should be doing that. If, if you want a deeper walk with Jesus, if you want more spirituality, whatever it is, however you're phrasing it, if you're deconstructing, whatever the thing, spend time in scripture. Let God's spirit speak to you the way he's always spoken to everybody in all places and in all times. That's a good thing. That's not how we're doing this one. Um, we're looking, instead of looking at individual verses or words, we're trying to look at big picture, or like what we're calling memes, like big images and how they like start in one place and get picked up and lifted and put into another place. So the first week I talked about gardens, right? The garden, the Bible starts in a garden and then we find bad things in gardens and good things in gardens and then Jesus is resurrected in a garden and at the very end of the Bible another garden comes. Like garden is an image that moves throughout scripture for different meanings at different points. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an important way to learn to read Scripture because it's how our Jewish brothers and sisters wrote Scripture. Like, that was their intent. Their intent was not down to, to microverses. Their intent was these big picture things and literary devices. And if we want to be good students of Scripture, and I think that we should, we have to learn to read it correctly, read it appropriately and honoring the work that God's Spirit did to them when they wrote it. Today, I want to pick up one of those themes, um, but I'm going to be a little apprehensive about this. I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings today. I'm going to start by hurting my own feelings, and then I'm going to hurt your feelings. I promise I love you. Um, This is well intended. Um, When I talk about chaos dragons, when I talk about gardens, when I talk about mountains, whatever it is, that's pretty benign, right? Those are big spiritual things. We can talk about those up here in the ether, and not have to do anything with them if we don't want to. There are images, we can play with them. But today, um, I want us to think about the theme of kingdoms in Scripture, and how kingdom gets moved around, and king gets moved around, and for us to do that, I have to talk about politics in 21st century American culture. <laughs> it is the third rail, right? It's the thing you're not allowed to talk about at the table. You don't talk about religion. You don't talk about politics. You don't talk about money. I'm going to talk about all three of them today. Hey, we need you to give more money to the church. We're going broke. Um, that's our tithing sermon for the, for the year. Um, we as a people, not just legend, but we as a people are wholly prepared to have civil theological conversations about kingdoms and politics in our world today. And we are worse. For that. To check out on politics in the world around you is an ultimate act of privilege because it says you're above the systems of the world. They don't affect you when they affect other people. We, as people of God, people of the kingdom of God, have to have a way to do this that's healthy, that honors God first, that honors our neighbor, that loves our enemies. And the world just desperately needs this. I, and I know you guys know this about me, that I get a little passionate about everything. Um, I treat politics like some of the rest of you all treat like sports, like this is my hobby. I majored in political science. I'm allowed to do this. Um, lately, when the conversation turns to politics, even amongst dear friends, I leave the room because I'm apprehensive and I'm anxious about what's going to happen to relationships in that conversation. I don't do that with my family, as you've all seen publicly, um, <laughs> because I'm not, a, I, man, on the side, I don't do that. I'm not scared of it with my family because I'm not apprehensive about losing that relationship. You all have seen me battle back and forth on Facebook, because that's a healthy thing to do. Um, <laughs> but you've seen me do that with my, with my own mom, and that But some of you have only ever met her through that medium and are wondering why I'm still in relationship with her. And it's because I have 45 years of backstory and human story of hers in which I get to couch that political conversation. She's lovely. She's great. But most of us don't know that. We only know the person through the debate, through the conflict, through the tribe. And it's killing us. Today, I was telling Roy about this. I'm apprehensive about this. Most of today will be an act of confession on my part. Just kids. I know that. I know what I'm saying about myself here. But what I want is, I want the world around us to be better in every way that it can be better. I want my street to be healthy. I want my schools to be great. I want my city to thrive. And that means that people like you and me, indwelt by God's Spirit, made new, as the, for, the first fruits of the new creation, we are the proof that God is moving and living and loving in the world, then of course we have to be involved in the conversations about how to make our world better. And I want to think about how to do that in a healthy way today. If I miss, I'm sorry. Um, we'll see. Um, it's my conviction, it's my, the, the, the vocation of us, that our vocation, our job as the church is to seek two things. One of them, is that we are to seek that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus has called for us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Real, concrete, practical ways. That means injustice has to go. That means we have to talk politics. Right? The second thing that is part of our vocation is for us to seek love, justice, truth, and beauty for all of God's creation and to steward that in a way that everyone thrives. Those are the convictions I'm working based on today. Um, Let's think, let's pray, and let's meditate on what God's doing. Lord, um, we are first and foremost subjects of your kingdom. We submit to you. We submit our finances to you. We submit our families to you. We submit our loves to you. We submit our hatreds to you. We give you everything. Help us to be the people you've called to be, Lord, so the world can be the world you've called it to be. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's put to bed something deeply unhealthy in our culture. I hear it all the time that the Bible in general, and excuse me, the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, are deeply, deeply political. There is no such thing as a neutral stance on politics, and Scripture doesn't try to take one. Every word and every action in Scripture has a political bend to it, and that's a deep and invested part of Eastern religion. So Jewish people would have known nothing about just waiting here, suffering it out so that we go to heaven later. The proof, the proof for our Old Testament brothers and sisters that God's will was being done was that I had a family and we had vineyards. Right? I had land that I could sustain myself on and I had a family. That was, that was heaven. That was the proof for our Jewish brothers and sisters. They had a specific idea... That they were trying to advance, and our Jewish brothers and sisters, just like us, were deeply engaged in a conversation and a dialogue with everyone in the world around them. So our Jewish brothers and sisters came along and said, you can't sacrifice children to the gods. That's bad. And their Canaanite neighbor said, of course we're going to sacrifice children to the gods. How are we going to get the crops? And they went back and forth, and they weren't nice to each other about it. Right? They went back and forth because they had a different view of the world. They had a different understanding of how the world works. When Christians get persecuted by the Roman Empire, it's not because they were going around saying, hey, everybody love one another. Nobody cared about that. You can say that anywhere you want in the world. Everybody's going to be great with you. Christians were persecuted because they would not pray to the emperor, and that meant that crops were going to fail, and that meant that their armies were going to lose. And our, the Romans said, what is wrong with you? Of course you've got to pray to... Yes, you've got to pray to the emperor. What, how will we get crops? It's very practical. It's very reasonable on the Roman part. Their worldview said, if you don't do this, we're all in a lot of trouble. There are examples everywhere. Genesis 1 is a political diatribe against the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian king. It, is, it exists to say Yahweh is better than Nebuchadnezzar or whichever king at the time it was written, Right? When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, that's not Jesus saying being nice. That is Jesus saying there's a political system in place, and when you turn the other she- cheek, you shame your Roman oppressors because they're allowed to hit you once. They're not allowed to hit you a second time. When they say to the Jewish people, pick up your, pick up your load, the, the, a Roman soldier could say to you as a Jewish person, pick that thing up and carry it with me for a mile. And Jesus says, take it too. Take it farther than they're allowed to make you go to shame them for their oppression. Everything that Jesus is saying and doing is deeply, deeply subversive and deeply, deeply engaged with the conversation about the world around us. I'm going to do one example today as we got to think. We're going to be in, um, of all things, the book of Revelation, right? It's the book we all ignore. It's the book that trips people up. And if you're a left behind, if you're scarred from like the left-behind novels like I am, um, like, the, you avoid the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is full of tests that I'm never going to fail, and God's going to leave me here in the burning earth to die while him and all my friends sit there and watch. Right? That's sort of like the big picture. Um, that was my introduction to Christianity, was that take on the book of Revelation. Um, as a kid who got in trouble a lot, that's a bad place to start. It was not like loving Jesus. It was Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth. Um, it's a weird book. The book is written by uh, the Apostle John. Uh, historically, there's some debate about that. And it's written at the end of the first Christian century. So Domitian is emperor of Rome, and he has set up shop in a city of Ephesus, which is in Turkey. John is pastoring the churches that Paul had planted. Paul is probably dead at this point. John has taken over the churches that Paul has planted in Ephesus, in Ephesus, in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And John is a fire starter. John is a dude who gets in fights a lot. Me and John, we're real close. Um, and so Domitian is set up and said, hey, if you want to go to the marketplace, you have to worship me. And John says, quite literally, the hell we will. And it starts a fight between the church and between, between Domitian, the Roman Empire. Um, and it, it comes back to the Romans had a view of how the world works, and John had a view of how the world works. Look at what John says in Revelation chapter 4. Oh, I'm going to turn this on. After this, I looked. This is John speaking. After this, I looked, and before me, there was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking led to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Pay attention here. And the one who sat there had the asper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled by the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashings of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. That's awesome. That's great stuff, right? So John, in a fight with the Roman emperor, has been tortured. He's been sent to Patmos, which is a prison island. Uh, The story of John's torture is great. You should look it up. he gets boiled alive but survives, and survives, and Domitian's terrified of him. And so then John writes this book, and he has a vision. Do you have any idea what the seven spirits of God are? You should not. <laughs> Nobody does. It's the most random thing you've ever seen. Like, I have no idea what to do with that, with that one verse. That's an oddball verse. And you read it, and it's so... Like, it's a, it's a great apocalyptic literature, which is its own genre of literature in this time period. Everybody's writing apocalyptic literature about how the world's going to end. This is John's vision of that. It's bewildering on a spiritual level because it's violent and it's dark. But it's also just boringly political. If you lived in Ephesus at the time of Domitian, if you lived in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus is a harbor city with just gorgeous cliffs and a seaway end of the town. The most prominent building in Ephesus is this. This is the Tower of the the Temple to Domitian. Domitian is the emperor at the time. That's a statue of him. It's like dozens and dozens of feet tall. It's huge. From anywhere in the city, you can see the Palace of Domitian or the Temple to Domitian. Do you see what's on the bottom of this temple that's holding it up? All the little statues? Those are the 24 gods of the Roman pantheon. Do you see what John was doing? John wrote about a vision in heaven of Jesus on the throne that looks exactly like the temple to Domitian. And what John is saying is your God, God, Domitian, is nothing. The emperor is just a man and I will mock him. And the Roman gods are nothing and I will mock them because our God sits on a real throne in heaven with the 24 elders bowing down to him. Nobody knows who the 24 elders of heaven are either. I don't know how you apply for that job. Um, But um, in a city dominated by a temple with an emperor built with 24 gods bowing down to him, where this emperor god stands on the back of the gods, John writes religious literature describing the throne room of God with Jesus at the center, 24 beings bowing down to him. Who's the real God, Jesus or Domitian? And when you say that, when you answer that question, you answer a political question. If you say that Domitian is not God, you have undermined the entire Roman politics system. And that is why John is in prison. John is not in prison for every time he writes, little children love one another. Right? Go read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, over and over again. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. Nobody goes to prison for saying little children love one another. Jesus doesn't go to a cross for saying, love your neighbor like yourself. He goes to a cross because he's a political revolutionary and everybody in his time knew it. And they treated him as such. I picked this example because it's one that's pretty shocking in a book that much of the church doesn't touch. It's also the easiest one to do one-to-one parallels, right? The 24 is perfect. The big throne statue is perfect. Like, it's, it's, it's right there in the symbolism, it takes John's really esoteric text, right, the book of Revelation, and it grounds it in creation. I could do this on almost every page of Scripture. Almost every page of Scripture asks a question about the nature of the world. The people of God are and always have been deeply engaged in a dialogue about how to make the world a better place. None of us have been called to wait. Until the world gets so bad that we all die and go to heaven in the clouds, that's Plato, that's Greek Hellenism. That is not Jewish Christianity coming out of the, out of the, out of Jerusalem in the first century. And because of a bunch of historical features, or excuse me, because of a bunch of historical accidents, we have gotten we have bought into a worldview that says religion is for what you do in private. Religion is for what maybe you do on Sunday morning. Religion is for what you do. And then the rest of the world gets to go over here. We call it the enlightenment. And it happened for a good reason because the church was so corrupt in the Middle Ages that people said, we don't want any more of that. It's a fair response. But what it has done is left us unprepared and unable to serve and to love the world in the way God wants us to serve and to love the world. Our earliest brothers and sisters were in constant conflict and dialogue with the world around them because they knew Jesus was king, and if Jesus is king, he has a right way to do things. He has a way that he wants things done, and that way will be hard, especially for the powerful and for the elite. And so the question becomes, what do we do with that? Hear me say first and foremost, I'm never going to prescribe that there is a Christian position on any issue. If you come to the church or to the world, wherever you're at, and have deeply held convictions about things, I believe that God's Spirit probably led you to those and has called you to do that kind of work. And that's good, God-honoring work. But are we the kind of people that are submitting our political thoughts, our thoughts about the world, to the lens and filter of Jesus, king of all creation. Can we explain to Jesus why we think the things that we do and how the things that we do and the things that we advocate for and the things that we want, the things that we build, can we explain to Jesus how what we want reflects his kingdom into the world? If not, then Jesus just becomes a tool for us to wield for our political, for our political advantage. Which is a real danger, right? It has happened time and time again, where Jesus is a cudgel wielded, wielded against other people instead of, instead of the great, the great king that we submit ourselves to. And so now this gets hard. So the, the premise here, the premise here is that the kingdom of God is always asking questions about the kingdom of the world. Throughout Scripture, there's a constant conversation saying, "I know, you've, I know you think it's like this, but it's really like this." I know that you think that power and wealth are important, but Jesus is going to say love and service is more important. I know that you think prestige and honor is more important, and Jesus is going to say, I'm a servant who washes feet in my underwear, right? Jesus debases himself, he reduces himself, he lowers himself. The very act of taking on human flesh is a debasement of a God, and Jesus does that in submission to the will of the Father because that's what the world needs. And none of us are trained... None of us are equipped to reduce ourselves to lift up others. So we have to constantly be practicing and working on it. How do we sustain, how do you and I sustain a critique like John, like the prophets, like Moses, like Paul, like Jesus? How do we engage healthily in a conversation with the world around us about the way the world is supposed to be that moves the needle? And doesn't reinforce the tribalism and the conflict and the dehumanizing way that we talk to and about other people. First, I think if we are followers of Jesus, we have to remember that every single other person that I meet bears the image of God. Everyone. Every person that I meet, my most reviled political enemy, bears the image of God and as such is worthy of love and respect and honor. If we, if, we held that, if we held that truth, we would change the world. It doesn't mean that the person I disagree with is right. Look, I'm arrogant as all get out. I think you're all wrong if you disagree with me. I just still love you, right? Right? <laughs> It doesn't mean that everybody's right. It means there's something more important than being right. And the image of God trumps all that. I've used this line before, and I wasn't going to use it this week, but Justin said I should. If you don't like it, it's his fault. When ministry started, when I started in ministry, I was at a very conservative Presbyterian church, and I got away with a lot of edginess there. Um, And I could be really edgy by standing up in our church at the time and saying... My pro-choice friends and my LGBTQ friends and my Democrat friends, they're all welcome at the table of God. And the adults are like, right? my high school kids are like, yeah, get him, right? They, could, they knew what I was doing. They knew I was being edgy. They knew I was picking a fight. They knew I was saying anything just to get on people's skin. And, but people had to sit there and be like, hey, he's right, but... Today, in my world, it feels like to go for that level of edginess, I have to stand up and say my most conservative brothers and sisters and my most most MAGA brothers and sisters are welcome at the table of God even if they disagree with me politically. And I don't know if that's true. I mean, I know it's true. I don't know that we believe it or practice it. I know that myself, for the last 10 years, have been way overboard in the way that I process and think about political scenes in the world. And I know that I have hurt feelings of, brother, of my brothers and sisters because of the way I've processed politics in Jesus. And most part, that's happened to my more conservative brothers and sisters. And for that, I repent. That's on me. Um, when, it started, when we started the church and when I started ministry, the world was in such a way that they, my progressive friends, my leftist friends, whatever the, the stupid labels are now, felt like they weren't welcome in most churches, and that hurt. And so I went out of my way to say, no, no, you can do, you can believe those things. You can be part of those. You can, you can still come and be part of the church because the church unites us over all those things. And that was important work that still needs done. We need to be saying that everybody's welcome all the time in the church. But what we can't do is just be the opposite side of the coin. If we were upset about the religious right and it's 60 or 70 years in politics, What we can't do is be people that create a religious left. It will have the same mistakes. It will cause the same heresies and errors, right? And we should know that the church, we just do that because we're people. We swing back and forth. Can we remember that every single person we meet bears the image of God and is worthy of our love and our attention? The second thing we have to do goes back to what I said earlier. We have to begin filtering what we think about the day-to-day workings of the world around us through the kingdom of God and what Jesus wants. Are you deeply, deeply into either pro-choice or pro-life? Great. Walk me through how that reflects the kingdom of God. And don't walk me through it. Walk Jesus through it. Talk to Jesus about it, right? You don't answer to me. But can we take whatever political, whatever, whatever policy choice, whatever voting choices we're making, can we take them and walk them through a filter that honors what God wants in the world? You can. Every one of them. The reason we have debates is because there's lots of gray issues in our culture, right? We debate things that aren't clear. And, and they're deeply held good faith positions on both sides of every issue even if there are bad faith actors as well. Right? What are we doing? What are we doing to, to take our own our own thoughts, our own politics, our own way of understanding the world, like John, like Paul, like Moses? Like, what are we doing to take those things and filter them through the kingdom of God so that they reflect the values of God? My contention would be that we do that, um, we do that in dialogue with each other. So if you have a deeply held political conviction, have you asked your brother and sister how that would affect them? If you got XYZ that you wanted in the next election, how would that affect our brothers and sisters? How would it affect our brothers and sisters in the church across the street? How would it affect our brothers and sisters in churches in Palestine? How would it affect our brothers and sisters in churches in Russia? Right? Everything has consequences have we thought about the consequences of what we want for other people? We should be in constant dialogue with each other, healthy, loving dialogue that honors the image of God in each other and says, brother and sister, teach me. Right? I'm open to learning more. I want to be a better follower of Jesus as I do this. Um, and then an obvious corollary to that is, are we in that dialogue with God? Are we asking God to change our minds and our hearts all the time to better reflect Him? Are we going through Scripture and saying, oh, What do you you mean, blessed are the poor? Is that true in your culture? When you walk down the street, do you look at the world around you and say, man, blessed are the poor? If not, why does Jesus say it? What does that mean? How do we reflect on that? What does that do? Finally, and I think this is the hardest part, we have to build alternative communities to the kingdoms of the world. The church has to be an alternative community to the way the world operates. I was reading, if you read through in Matthew 25, Jesus gives a bunch of weird promises about where you're gonna find him. If you wanna meet Jesus, where do you go? You go to the homeless shelter, you go to the hospital, you go to the prison, right? You go to where people are naked, you go to where people are sick, you go to people who are needy, and you take care of them, and Jesus promises that we will be there. Each one of those is a political action. When we take that, we're building a community that honors people in a way that the world doesn't. And this week, I've heard that verse a thousand times. This week, for the first time, somebody pointed out that when the church acts that way, it's acting like an immigrant or a refugee community, right? Because it knows that the system can't take care of them. So refugee communities have to become self-sustaining because they know that the larger system won't care for them, that, they will, that they're outcasts. Jesus describes the kingdom of God in Matthew 25 as a kingdom of refugees living living in a society that is against them. What can we do as Legend Community Church to build an alternative community to the world around us? How do we lift up outside voices? Go look at who Jesus hangs out with. How are we taking the outcast, the despised, the looked down upon, the disabled, right? Every gender, every race, every sexuality, all the people that are on the outside, how are we pull, not only pulling them in, but honoring the image of God in them as they become part of our community. When we do that, we bear witness to the world that there's a better way of doing things. We do that at the table. We do that in our conversations with each other. This is the life of people who will not be served by power structures of their place, and so they have to look to their own. The kingdom's The empires of the world are opposed to the kingdom of God. And I don't care if that's the kingdom of Russia or if it's the kingdom of America. It is opposed to the kingdom of God, and it always has been. And the call to the people of God has always been we live our lives the way God has called us to live, and we trust that God will care for us and provide for us in big ways. If we can do those three things, I think we can be on a revolutionary trajectory we can be the people that sees the kingdom of God, begin to work out. And we know that it'll never be perfect. We know that there's no utopia coming. But we know that God has called us to work on it to make it better, deeply, concretely, and in the world, and to our neighbors. I'll invite the band to come back down. When we take communion every week, we proclaim, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. When we take communion every week, we pick up our cross And we go to our own death and to our own resurrection. When we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, we announce that Caesar is not. And the way to that is through the death, the resurrection, and the victory of Jesus over the powers of principalities. As you come down, as you come down, ask God, ask God where the empire has taken hold. Ask God where the kingdoms have gotten rain in your life. Ask where there are strongholds. Ask where we can be the people of God in a new and a refreshing way. Where you can be the outpost of new creation, new life in a Jesus way. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for for your kingdom. Lord, the kingdoms around us have failed us. The ways of the world have left us lacking. Lord, the power structures are destroying us. The tribalism is breaking us. We know that you love us. And more than that, Lord, we know that you love everyone around us. Help us to be the kingdom of God. Help us to live it out. Help us to love like you love, Lord. Help us to come now to this table as the proof and evidence of your love. In Jesus' name, amen.